Hello and welcome to Getting Goosebumps, the weekly podcast exploring the business of storytelling, where I interview many of the world's greatest marketers and storytellers to share their insights and ideas of how to put emotion into marketing. So this week I have the absolute pleasure of talking to a marketing god, Seth Godin. He's known widely as a New York Times bestseller for, I think it's 18 books he's written now, including Lynchpin, Tribes, my personal favorite, Purple Cow. Seth has been speaking, leading our marketing thoughts, inventing vocabulary that we use widely today for many years. He's a prolific blogger and a phenomenal marketing brain. So the conversation this week includes how to get your story heard above the noise, why we cry at Disney films, and we explore authenticity versus manipulation. Well, hello and welcome to the show. Um, Seth, it's an absolute pleasure and a delight to talk to you today. Well, thank you for having me. Fantastic. Um, Seth, I want to talk to you today about the about effective storytelling, something which I know um, you've written and spoke about for many years, and the value and importance of um, emotion in marketing. You said many years ago, marketing is no longer about the stuff that you make, but the stories that you tell. Um, in your opinion, is that even more the case now uh, than when you first made that statement? About uh, two weeks ago, I went online, I clicked nine buttons, and then some people I never met in a place I will never visit made the thing I ordered almost instantly, almost for free, and it arrived at my office eight days later. It, it, it doesn't make any sense for someone to make exactly what they make and try to be cheaper than them because it's impossible that we see this not just with things like sew-on patches and printing and decals and jackets and shoes, but all the way along the food chain. If you are a radiologist and all you can do is read an x-ray, the same as anyone else, I don't need to hire you to read an x-ray because there's someone 100 miles or 1,000 miles or 10,000 miles away who can read the digital x-ray faster and cheaper than you can. So we are now way past the time that we can charge a significant premium merely because we can meet spec. And the only place we're going to grow is by creating meaning for people. And I would argue, for example, that an iPhone costs twice as much as an Android phone, not because it's a better phone, because it's not, but because the experience of buying it, talking about it, and using it makes some people feel better. Absolutely. And I guess you know, storytelling is the best way to give sort of context and meaning to, to things. But it's surprising, isn't it? Because there's still business leaders, uh, people running companies out there that still don't recognize the importance of, of storytelling. Um, and I guess what you're saying is most things are commoditized. And the, the, the one thing that we do have is the ability to connect with our audience better than our, our competition, right? I mean, is there any, what, what else would you say to those CEOs, business leaders that still don't recognize the importance of storytelling? Well, they may be confused about what storytelling is. That um, if you grew up, say, at the Ford Motor Company, where scientific management reached its apogee in the 1920s, you have a culture that says the way we got to where we got 
was by making a better car cheaper. Mm-hmm. And that is, in fact, true, but also a story. A story has nothing to do with the Brothers Grimm. A story has nothing to do with Disney. A story is merely the shorthand we use when we talk about how human beings process the world around them. We do not process the world around us the way computers do. We do it with a narrative. And that's why optical illusions work. And that's why we cry at an animated cartoon. An animated cartoon is not a bunch of pixels on the screen. It's our past and our future and our narrative all swirled together. And we're watching it in a room filled with other people who are pumping out uh, endorphins and all sorts of other things that are resonating with us. Uh The same thing is true when we sell a motorcycle. The same thing is true when we sell life insurance. I mean, they don't call it death insurance, but that's what it is. We don't get any of the benefits till we're dead. So why do people buy life insurance? Well, they buy it. They give up money today, not so that their heirs will have money tomorrow. They give up money today so they will feel better today about their future. And that feeling informs a story. Yeah, so if if there's business leaders out there and they've just listened to the first few minutes of this and they are now sold on that and you've cleared up that confusion, what's what's the skill set required for somebody starting out? Um, you know, what what do they need to get around them to to start building the stories that are going to help build their business? Well, as you point out, the hardest one is the humility to accept the fact that you need to tell a story. <laughs> yeah. That if you tell a story on purpose, you're more likely to tell a story. The second thing is empathy. Because it doesn't matter if the story resonates with you. It doesn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. It matters if the story resonates with the person you're telling it to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what the person you're telling it to cares about is not what you care about. So a lot of times you hear entrepreneurs go into great detail about how they were able to get to the point in their career, how they were able to overcome things, how they were miraculously able to make something. And that story resonates with them and maybe their mother-in-law, but that's it. That, we don't want to hear that story. We want to hear a story about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And you can only do that if you have empathy for the people you're talking to. And would you say, would you say it's getting harder or, or easier? Well... I think we, you know, no one laughs at people who stand up and say, let's tell a story anymore. So it's easier in the sense that it is more recognized. Mm -hmm. It is more difficult because as manipulative actors enter the stage and try to concoct stories that aren't true, the world gets noisier. And in a noisier world, uh, it's harder for your story to break through and resonate and spread. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you this a little bit later on, actually, but it's it's relevant now. Um, one of the things I really believe is that great marketing starts um, in the HR department, not the marketing department. Um, so it, that might mean empowering people to make great decisions so they can engage with customers differently and create those brand legends that you can then tell and, and share. And it has that element of, of authenticity. Is that something you would agree with? Well, we can dissect authenticity, but um, I would start by saying the metaphorical HR department, meaning the 
idea that it's the people and the freedom and responsibility that people have mm-hmm. is clearly where this begins. Unfortunately, in almost every organization big enough to have an HR department, they're not actually allowed to do HR. <laughs> what they are really doing is uh, procuring cheap labor and making sure that policies are enforced, neither of which is what they set out to do. But unfortunately, industrial CEOs demand that of their HR department. Yeah, it's almost like getting back to the uh, life insurance, death insurance kind of thing. It's the complete opposite. Um, but I was going to ask you what constitutes um, real authentic marketing. And I know that's a, um, a big question, but you know, when, when a brand does something seemingly wonderful for their audience... Um, but it's planned in advance, in advance, it's contrived, it's controlled by the marketing department, it's recorded, they have the video and all the rest of it. Just like, I don't know whether you remember the WestJet Airlines Christmas marketing stunt? I, I do. Okay, so, um, so when we're looking at authenticity there, where, where do we draw the line? Is, is, that, is that authentic? And will... will the consumer put up with and I know it's entertaining and interesting and lots of people it was very successful but is that is that sustainable is it authentic and is is it sustainable that approach well you know let's try to decode this because it can get very tricky very fast (laughs) if you if you go to a Broadway revival of guys and dolls and you are standing up at the end giving them a huge ovation because it was so magical and the actors were so uh, enthusiastic. Are you wondering if every single actor was having the perfect day? No. It's okay with you to understand that they're acting, Mm -hmm. that one person's having trouble with her marriage and one guy has a sore knee, but they're acting and therefore it's great because you went to see acting and they pulled it off. Mm -hmm. So we don't demand this weird notion of authenticity that we want to make sure that the intent of each person is pure. Yeah. Um, and if we get caught in that trap, it will cripple us because as soon as we're tasked with doing something that scares us, we will say, well, I just don't really feel like it. And therefore, I won't be authentic, so I won't do it. Uh, it also means that people who do things like uh, unclogged toilets or uh, pump out uh, septic tanks can never be enthusiastic about their work because that would be inauthentic because who wants to do that? All right, so let's dispense with that and understand that what humans really want is promises to be kept. Okay. And the problem with the WestJet video, which I got a little weepy in the middle, um, <laughs> is it was manipulative. Mm. Not that it was inauthentic. Okay. And what that means is that the people who encountered them at the airport thought that what they were seeing was somebody who actually cared about Christmas. Yeah. When in fact they were seeing an actor. That's different than at a Broadway show. That's different than uh, a place like an Apple store. When you walk into an Apple store, you don't say to yourself, Boy, there's all these people here who voluntarily came to work today to be cheerful. You say, this is their job, and it's still making me happy. And so this manipulative idea that we are going to pretend to do one thing when we actually are thinking another, and then we're going to show how we're being manipulative, 
That's when companies get into trouble. When they, for example, make a really big deal about how environmentally uh, sound they are, and you go around to the back door of the plant and they're dumping effluent in the Hudson River, right? That's not inauthentic in the sense that people do things for a living. It's manipulative in the fact that they intentionally misled you just to get what they wanted, not what you wanted. Yeah, absolutely. It, it worked and it was shared a lot and they got the response they, they want. But do you think the audience is getting smarter and wising up to that and we will stop being um, impressed and engaged by, by that approach based on what you just said? Well, it's important to understand there's no such thing as people. There are segments of the population, but mostly there are individuals. Yep. So some individuals are getting cynical, but that's always been true. And the vast majority are suckers Mm -hmm. and have short memories and are easily seduced into buying a bag of crisps that will end up causing obesity or that um, pay double for one version of vodka over another, even though they're exactly the same item. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we have to be very careful when we start generalizing But I do believe that the leading cutting edge of sort of the media cognoscenti are ever more cynical now. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it really is important to, you know, really try to make an emotional connection. It's it's not business to business or business to consumer. It is people to people. But as a group of individuals, we're getting smarter, aren't we? You know, and you use the word cynical there. I mean, I remember 10 years ago, um, you could send an email and it was you know, virtually guaranteed to be opened by everybody that you sent it to because that's that's what people did. But now people delete emails without even opening them. So so behavior is changing, isn't it? And I'm, I'm just wondering how that influences um, our, our thinking when we're crafting and conceiving marketing plans and, and trying to be authentic with our, with our storytelling. Well, there was a short moment. I was delighted to be part of it when millions and millions of people paid a lot of attention to email that came with permission. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that led the opportunity to craft a more complicated story. So when I think about something like Kickstarter, Kickstarter is a fairly complicated uh, business offering. Mm-hmm. And I think if you launch Kickstarter today, you'd have a lot of trouble because the connected, intelligent people you need to start it are so overwhelmed with their mobile screens and swiping left and swiping right that they might not have taken the time to dig in deeply to understand all of the complications of how Kickstarter works. Uh, That doesn't mean we're all stupid. It doesn't mean we're all overwhelmed. But it does mean the more precise you can be about who you are focusing on, the more likely it is that those people will take the time to hear your story. Okay, so from a, a content producer's point of view then, um, what are some of the basic building blocks that you think are absolutely key um, to producing content that's actually going to do a job so it actually will engage and add value and, and make a difference? Because one thing that I think, I hope you'll agree with, one thing for sure is so many people right now are investing um, expensive time to produce content, but then seem to have neglect the conviction to produce great content, which actually does a job. Because, well, there's 
a plethora of content out there which is just rendered useless and meaningless because nobody nobody engages with it. Why, why do you, why do you think people still invest the, that time, even though that that happens time and time again? When in doubt, look for the fear. And in this case, the fear is that if you do something that stands out, that's remarkable, you'll be responsible for it. If you do something that's average, well, you just did what everyone told you to do. So when it comes time to go the last mile, to be Miles Davis recording Kind of Blue, when it comes time to be Ornette Coleman, not just somebody playing in some big band, that's when we hold back. Because guess what? A lot of people didn't like Ornette Coleman. Um, you know, guess what? A lot of people don't like what that chef is doing when he's cooking with moss and whatever. Because when you go to an edge, you're responsible. <laughs> and I think that the most uh, common mistake people who do go to the edge make is they demand that they be embraced by the masses. And those two things do not go together. You start by amazing and delighting and becoming remarkable for the few, for the weird, for the edge cases. And then sometimes, not often, they tell their friends. And, and I, so I guess what you're saying there is, you know, being brave, you know, that, that doesn't entitle you to be successful. And that's because you talk about... Um, you talk about failure quite a lot, and it's it's, it's a good thing. So I, I guess you have to go through that process if if you're going to be if you're going to be remarkable. I'm not sure I'd say through. You might end up in that process forever. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but I guess the pursuit of it is the important thing then. Well, the craft of it is definitely this idea. You know, if you go back uh, almost to any era where you find the craftspeople that we admire today, they almost never said, I am doing this because I will become the most popular. They're doing it because this is their craft. So Josiah Wedgwood is the exception. Josiah Wedgwood, pretty much the first mass marketer, the first direct marketer, the first industrialist. Wedgwood China uh, was so big that he was the richest man in the world when he died. Mm -hmm. And he was a craftsman. That confluence of uh, outcomes is really, really rare. What's far more rare, far more common, I'm sitting here looking at my bookshelf, are you know, the 30 authors that are sitting right there, each of whom was a master at what she did, mm -hmm. and none of whom sold as many books as J.K. Rowling. That's what's most likely to happen. Yeah. Okay. So, so following on from that then, um, now I've spoken to a lot of marketers over the years. Um, and, and when I've asked them who's, who are the best storytellers in the world, um, they say marketers. And, and, I'm, and I'm actually not so sure. Um, and as you've just pointed out there, you know, if you're a craftsman, craftswoman at the top of your game, um, you, know, you can tell stories and be the richest person when you, in the world when you die. Um, who, who do you think are the best storytellers in the world today? Is it content marketers? Is it movie writers, comedians, politicians? What, what, what are your thoughts? Um, I think without a doubt it's mothers. <laughs> wow, okay. I didn't think you were going to say that. I think there's such a difference between 
some uh, post-college hack who goes to some content marketing conference trying to figure out how to write a blog post that gets a few more shares mm. and a mom who's going to devote 15 or 20 years of her life to crafting a human being not with any digital or technical or physical tools yeah. but merely by setting a standard uh, and leaving, living a life that leaves the story behind. Wow, okay. So, so what, what lessons do we take from that then, Seth, as marketers? Well, you know, one of the trite lessons they try to teach you is don't do anything as a marketer you wouldn't want your mom to know. <laughs> okay. And when I think about the best content marketers, they are doing content marketing whether or not their internal narrative is that they're doing it for the right reason, they are consistently non-manipulative mm -hmm. and leading from a place of education, not leading from a place of conversion. Right, okay. And, and I guess the sort of, from the mother's perspective, a lot of that, we, I guess we could use the word empathy again and you know, without going too soft and fuzzy, really genuinely caring about the focal point. Um, putting somebody else's best interests uh, before your own and, and that kind of thing. Am, am I right? So sometimes people say, I'm just doing my job. <laughs> and what I would say to those people is you should be really careful about what job you take. Yeah. That once you sign up to tell a story for someone, it's not just your job. You are putting things into the world that you are responsible for. That means that if just my job includes short-term cycling of manipulative messaging to make the stock price go up, that was your choice. Mm -hmm. And you need to own that. And one of the things that makes a great screenplay a great screenplay is that the person who wrote it isn't blaming somebody else for what they wrote. They wrote it because they wanted to write it. Yeah, that's... That's, that's really interesting. That's a really interesting point. But I guess if there are um, marketers sat listening to this right now and they're saying, "Yeah, that's all well and good, Seth, but I'm under pressure, and part of my job role, which I love, um, is to tell great stories." How does how does that translate, and how can we help that person listening? Well, I guess I'd start by saying. So you have a short-term problem. How many times does that problem repeat every week, mm. month, every year? Because uh, enough short-term problems added up become a lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> and then you can say, well, you know, it's not my fault because there was always an urgency. And I don't deny that there's an urgency. What I'm saying is, do you want to become someone who matters? And if you do, you're probably not going to do it in a place that doesn't give you freedom to do work you believe in. And that work you believe in doesn't have to mean being Mother Teresa's assistant. But it does, I think, need to mean that you resonate with people who would miss you if you were gone. And a lot of times we want to be let off the hook. And what I'm asking people to do is push themselves to be put on the hook. <laughs> okay. So you're basically saying, you know, Change, change the environment, change the, uh, the situation you're in in order to, to be able to do your best work, I guess. Well, 
you know what? Most people don't have to quit their job to do this. Mm -hmm. Most people merely need to be willing to quit their job. <laughs> because if you're willing to quit your job, you will discover just how many doors in your office are actually open for you to do great work. But most people refuse to go through those doors. I mean, there are places I have worked where I made a ruckus, where I did this growth that I'm talking about and my peers did not because they were playing it safe and I was taking the point of view of, well, if I have to play it safe, I'd rather be fired. Hmm. I'm sure that's just resonated with a lot of people. I'm, I'm sure it is. If, if Assuming you've just inspired people to, to, to push back and they're now committed to do their, their best work, just getting back to story, great storytelling for a second, and I really want to give some tangible ingredients or you know, tangible things for, for the audience to think about. Um, I ask people all the time what, what are some of the key ingredients of, of a, a great story. And you, we've, we've, we've touched on it already, but some people say relevance and value. and um, Some people say being different. Some people say anticipation and suspension, all that kind of stuff. How, how, how would how would you crystallize um, what's integral to crafting a great story from the perspective of sat down from you've sat down you have a story in your head how how do you position that and make it the most appealing to to the audience that you're trying to engage with? Mm. Well, I'm going to try to be general here because it's the specifics vary wildly. Yeah. The first thing I would say is stories that work almost never have words. So we add a narrative later to explain why a woman wants a Birkin bag. <laughs> but if you could somehow put her in an MRI machine, the words don't come out. What we're, our brain is complicated on the outside, but on the inside it's just a bunch of chemicals and electricity. So we try to make up words, but mostly what we're after are things, analogs to things that have worked before. This feels like that. Okay. And this feels like that, I think, gets us down the road to the simplicity of what can make a story work. This scene in Buckaroo Banzai feels like that scene in Ghostbusters, which reminds us of this scene in The Godfather. The movies don't have anything in common, but the feeling that that moment caused is very familiar. Yeah, and obviously a lot of emotive sort of words there, and I guess that's, that's what it boils down to, isn't it, is changing the state of, um, of somebody. That's how somebody's really going to connect with your, with your message, isn't it? Exactly. The, the place I was going is, and you nailed it, the only reason to tell a story is to change someone. And if you can't tell me the change you're trying to make and who you're trying to change, then you're not a professional. <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. Nicely, uh, nicely summed up, Seth. Just before we, um, we wrap up, Seth, as, um, one thing that's been bugging me about, because obviously... I read a lot, I write a lot, and you know, I listen to, uh, to peers, and um, I hear quite a lot of sound bites. There's always a new sound bite. Um, content is king. Context is king. Can you tell us what's the next king, or is that just a load of crap? 
Well, okay. So the reason that we have royalty is because it can focus our attention. Ted, Ted Leonsis ran AOL for a long time, wanted to get people to understand that while content mattered, if you didn't have carriage, the ability to be in front of people you needed to reach, you would fail. So he started talking about carriage as king, and that got a lot of people's attention and shifted so, you know, the royalty thing is a story. It doesn't yeah. work on everyone, but it does work on some people. Mm-hmm. For me, I guess the the question that I would ask if I was a marketer is, where in the food chain have I chosen to work? Have I chosen to be the person who invents the thing from the very beginning? Did I say, I want to be the sole practitioner, the starter, the woman who uh, begins at the beginning? Or have... I decided to be the last part of the chain where I'm at the counter and the customer is walking in to buy the baked goods that someone else came up with the recipe for that someone else baked. Where you are in that cycle determines how much leverage you have, how much freedom you have to tell a story. Uh If a diabetic walks in and all the muffins have sugar, you got no story. (laughs) On the other hand, if you want to tell a story to diabetics, come up with a different recipe if you're at the beginning of the chain. So I guess what I might say is context in the sense that you need to understand your context is, if not the king, maybe the queen, as you make this decision. Because putting yourself in the wrong place merely because you read a few blog posts is nothing but frustration. Yeah. I think... think the one thing that sort of bothers me about those labels, it just seems like an oversimplification. It seems like a bumper sticker. But listening to you there, Seth, I guess if we're comfortable with the fact that it might be an oversimplification based on the context of what you're trying to achieve at the time, it's a sharp device for getting the attention you're looking for, essentially. Well, remember, as storytellers, we're also telling ourselves a story and we're telling our peers a story. So I hope that in this chat, you and I have been able to help shed some light on what that story is and what i think we have to do is each of us starts with what's our story how do we see the world because if you're not clear about that it's really hard to tell somebody else's story brilliant seth that's a it's a great place to uh to end our our chat um i i usually say where can people find out more about you at this point but i feel a little daft saying that about um to that, to, to you, Seth. Um, given that you can type Seth into Google and and, and people find you, but um, is there anything you'd like um, to draw our audience's attention to or leave us with? Well, you know, I decided a long time ago not to be in the pitching business. It makes my life easier. <laughs> so, what I really would like to sell people on is doing something that scares them, and if my work can help them do that, that's even better. Fantastic. Fantastic. Thanks so much, so much, Seth. I can't thank you enough for today. It's been a pleasure for me, and I know it's been a pleasure for the audience. Thanks. Thanks again. Keep making the ruckus. Thank you, Brian. Okay. Take care. So that's it for another week. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. If you did, please feel free to subscribe or even check out our Getting Goosebumps marketing book available in Amazon. If you have any specific questions, you can also tweet us using the hashtag AskPH. I'd be delighted to answer your questions. Until next week, goodbye.